welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Today, you'll see how Jesus' words cause many to desert him and a few to be more fully devoted to him. The series is extraordinary, and today's episode, Desertion. Here's Associate Pastor J.C. Thompson. Good morning. How are you? Good. I'm doing fantastic. Amazing, wonderful, incredible. I mean, after yesterday and the weather, feeling real good today. It felt good yesterday. Um, man, thank you all for being here. Uh, Josh and I, we have loved teaching this series. Uh, and while, you know, I definitely preach to myself, it's much more fun preaching to you all. Uh, so thank you all for that. Um, if you could, you can turn in John chapter 6 today. We're continuing our series entitled Extraordinary. We'll be on the back half of that chapter today. Um, and talking about a guy that we actually talked a little bit about last week. So last week, if you weren't here, we talked about just the difference in response between Mary, who expressed this heartfelt, full devotion to Jesus through sharing an expensive, generous gift and wiping his feet uh, with his hair, with her hair, as she anointed Jesus' feet. And then the opposite of that response was Judas, who uh, ended up betraying Jesus Christ, and so we saw that and realized that that is, that's where we're at. We, we, we're at this place of responding to who Jesus is, and so today we're kind of taking a trip back in time, where Judas is also one of the characters we'll be looking at today, and we're looking really at a group of people that we've heard kind of the back end a little bit of Judas's story. We've also heard a little bit of the front end of this story today as we talked about the feeding of 5,000. And we are looking at the group of people, that crowd of people that Jesus had miraculously fed. We're looking at how they kind of follow up with Jesus after that. And they did not respond so well uh, to Jesus after that moment. But this crowd, they love parts about Jesus. They love what Jesus was doing in their midst, but they did not love everything about Jesus, as we'll see today. They loved the things that Jesus did but they do not love the things that Jesus says. You know, when Jesus is healing people, when he's casting out demons, when he's raising people from the dead, and he is miraculously providing food for at least 5,000 men and their families, he's the life of the party. But when he opens his mouth, they're not happy with what comes out. So if you got your outline, we're getting started fast today, okay? We got a lot to talk about. But you'll see there, Jesus' words divide. Jesus' words divide. Now, today, this passage, we'll see that Jesus is speaking to a group of, look up here, if you're online, look at me. He's speaking to a group of disciples. That's a very popular thing. My youngest is doing air quotes all the time about stuff. He loves to do it. Um, but they're disciples in the most basic sense of the word. They're around Jesus to learn from him, but they have not committed their lives to alignment with his teaching. They're just around. And so this story is Jesus basically saying exactly where they're at. They're following Christ, and I think there is a legitimate desire to understand a little bit more about who he is. But ultimately, their desire to understand who he is is to answer the question, What's Jesus going to do for me? 
How are the miraculous, powerful things that Jesus is doing, how are those going to benefit my life? But Jesus doesn't meet their expectations. When he begins to teach, in fact, it's almost like he's coming directly against their expectations. So after he fed this crowd of 5,000 men, this crowd wanted to follow him. In fact, they woke up the next day and they're like, hey, where's this Jesus guy at? He wasn't there, so they did some investigation, some journalism. They tried to figure out when the world's going on, where the disciples, what's happening. And so they found out from a group of people that Jesus had kind of left. And so they figured out, well, we're going to go find this Jesus. We, we want more of what Jesus gave to us. And so in verse 25, they find Jesus and they ask him, why'd you leave? Why'd you go away? And Jesus responds to that crowd by saying that, they didn't really want Jesus. They just wanted the things that Jesus can give to them, the bread that he provided to them. So then if Jesus is not going to give them what they want, they ask Jesus, well, tell us how we can get what we want. Tell us how we can perform these miraculous works of God. In other words, if you're not going to do that, tell us how we can do it, which is, should be bold to everybody in this room, asking Jesus, it, who just provided food miraculously to tell them how to do that. Teach me your magic trick. That should be shocking to us that they would ask that. But Jesus told them that the only work you need to know how to do is how to place your faith in God. But they didn't like that. So then they asked him, well, if you're really from God, prove it to us. Do something else. Prove that you're really God. Because I guess providing bread miraculously from one little boy's lunch is not enough proof for them. But they get a little bit more aggressive in how they ask Jesus to answer these questions. In fact, they quote scripture to them. You know, Moses provided bread for us from heaven. Can't you do the same? And Jesus quickly corrects them and says, Moses didn't give you bread. Moses doesn't have any power to give you bread. God provided that bread for you. And not only that, but I am way greater than Moses. That's what Jesus says to this group. In fact, even the manna from heaven was ultimately to be a picture of Jesus Christ, the very bread of life. So while they were trying to kind of poke at Jesus, Jesus saying, that scripture is about me anyway. I came to be the bread of life. I came to be the manna from heaven. And he told them he came from heaven. And that if they're going to truly have eternal life, they must place their faith in him. And all that do will be resurrected on the last day. But then you see this crowd completely unravel. This guy can't be from heaven. We know Mary and Joseph from Nazareth. There's no way he came from heaven. He came from Mary and Joseph, just regular people. And everybody knows nothing good comes from Nazareth anyway. And so Jesus continues to push further with his words so that they have to decide what they'll do with the truth that he presents. He says to them, no, if you're, if you're truly going to be my follower, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, to summarize that very quickly so we can get to our passage, it means that we must place our faith not only in the things that God has done through Jesus Christ, but we also must place our faith in the fact that Jesus Christ is going to die. And his blood shed, his body broken, which we uh, celebrate and remember the sacrifice of Jesus through the Lord's Supper, which we'll do in a few weeks. Without Christ's sacrifice, we can't have life. 
And so when it, the scriptures talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, like Jesus said, what that means for us is that we must come to faith in the way that God has provided for us to come to faith. And that's the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus will die and that we must place our faith in his death as well as his life. Now, the crowd is not happy about Jesus saying that. And I think they play off a little bit on the fact that he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood and don't play on the symbolism of what he meant by that, but only this guy's literally saying this to us. And this passage today, our passage for this morning, is Jesus' response to them saying, uh, all this teaching, this is, this is too much for us. So in verse 60 of John chapter 6, we'll start our passage for this morning. Many of his, and look up here, disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining, so he said to them, does this offend you? Then what will you think if you see the Son of Man ascend to heaven again? The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. See, these disciples, this crowd who had just benefited from a miracle... They're not true believers in Christ. They like what Jesus is doing and what he's provided for them, but they are not in full alignment with all the things that he is teaching. In fact, I would say that they're just associating with him until it doesn't work for them anymore. The Greek word used here for very hard to understand is the word sclero. Y'all say that, it's fun to say, say sclero. Now, that word doesn't mean hard to comprehend. It means rigid, stiff. The crowd is saying that Jesus, what you just told us is harsh. Don't be harsh with us. Now, it's not that Jesus' words are difficult to comprehend. It's that the crowd felt like they were too difficult for them to follow in obedience. And so, to them, Jesus' words are harsh. And I think Jesus' words can feel harsh to anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of God in them. I think they can feel like an offense to them. And I picked today's theme verse for this very reason. Today's theme verse comes from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. You know, when I was growing up in church, they made you memorize this. They wanted you to remember what, what God's Word was and its purpose. And so Hebrews 4, 12 says this, For the Word of God is living and active in the translation I memorized, alive and powerful in the new living. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Now, this week, kids are going back to school this week. Uh, Chris and my wife and I, we had talked about um, making sure we have some certain conversations with our oldest child before he enters into the fifth grade. And so I was privileged to be able to take him out this week. And as we're talking, first of all, he says, I'm going to give you some language if you're uh, an older parent or younger parent in here as they start learning all these fun words. As we're talking, he says, Dad, this, this conversation is sus, uh, which means suspicious suspect, right? This is weird. This is a weird conversation uh, with a smile cracking on his face. I said, yes, son, this, this conversation is sus for sure. Um, but we, we went to Cabela's. I let him pick out his first pocket knife. And 
Listen, I don't care what any of y'all think about that. I'm his dad, so I'm going to do what I think is right for him, okay? Y'all can email me afterwards, okay? But we live in the woods. Me and my family, we live in the woods. And there's lots of fun things to do with a pocket knife and a multi-tool in the woods and can be very useful. At the same time, as I'm walking out of Cabela's, I'm thinking to myself, my son could use his pocket knife against his little brother. He could use it against me. He, he could use this weapon, which was not meant to be a weapon. It's meant to be a tool. He can use that against someone and harm them. And yet at the same time, growing in responsibility, I'm, I'm hopeful, praying that my young son, who has grown up to be a man, will understand that tools are not meant to be weapons. That he can use this beneficially in his life and ultimately it is up to that particular person if they're going to use that as a weapon or they're going to use that as a tool. And so, but I did have a moment of, am I doing the right thing here as a dad, giving this pocket knife to my 10-year-old? What in the world's happening? But I will just tell you that more, way more sharp than that little pocket knife that I gave to my son is God's Word. And God's Word tells us that the truth that's presented through his word doesn't just cut our skin. It's not just a flesh wound. No, the word of God penetrates to the very core of our being. We cannot read the word of God honestly and not be presented with who we truly are. And Jesus, who's the very word of God, according to John chapter 1, when he speaks with his words, his words serve the same purpose, penetrating to the very core of those who hear them. And just like in this passage, we see Jesus's words divide the crowd into those who are true believers, into those who are not true believers, the scriptures do the same for us today. They're a measuring stick for us. You see, words are powerful. Now, I'm sure when you were growing up, I don't know if kids actually say this anymore, but when I was a kid, and I'm sure before that, you used to have this saying, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt me. And I think that the hope with that statement was to foster some resilience and some strength in some children because who their identity is should be stronger than whatever third or fourth grade boy or girl says to them in class. And I think that was the meaning. But then you grow up and you realize people say some extremely hurtful things and some of those things linger with you for a long time. And so when you hear something like you're a cotton-headed ninny muggins, you're supposed to say out loud, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But I think the saying should go a bit more like this, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may break me too. You see, Jesus' words are what really divide people. And while Jesus' words are never meant to hurt, and his words are never presented as harmful or harsh, they do truly reveal who we are. And some of that identity that we have is wrapped up in struggle, in sinfulness, in addiction, and can feel frustrating when we hear it. But that's what Jesus aims to speak to. He aims to speak to who you truly are and not who you think you might be. And so Jesus gives us insight as to his harsh words, harsh according to those disciples. 
as he replies, oh, you think you're offended by what I say? You're going to be really offended if you see me ascend into heaven. Now, there's two options for what he meant by that. One is when he talks about his actual ascension after he's resurrected from the dead, as he does ascend into the sky to be back with his father, where he came from, as he says. Or the second possibility, which I think is probably more likely in this situation, is based on the conversation about him asking that crowd to eat his flesh and drink his blood. I think he's pointing to his eventual being placed on a cross, lifted up, ascended. And that if they're offended by his words of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, they're going to be really offended when the pathway to eternal life is through one man's death. But either way, Jesus' point is this. If you think this is hard to believe, there's going to be stuff that comes that's even harder for you to believe. And if you can't embrace these truths now, do you think you'll be able to embrace something when it becomes a little more difficult? See, John MacArthur summarizes the crowd's response to Jesus when he says this. He says, these disciples have no problem viewing him as a baby in the manger at Christmas time or a social reformer with a broad message of love and tolerance, the ideal human that everyone should emulate or a source of health, wealth, and worldly happiness. But they are unwilling to embrace a biblical Jesus. In fact, they would prefer it if Jesus just kept his mouth closed. And listen, we've got the same opportunity to respond to Jesus' words today. So if you've got your outline, we'll continue here. In responding to Jesus' words, we've got two options. We can do what this crowd does, and we can desert him, desert him. Now, that's not a fancy play on words. That's not desert like ice cream, okay? That means to leave him. I know they sound the same, okay? I'm not trying to be creative uh, and, uh, and chinky up here. I'm just trying to share with you, for me, this crowd deserted him. That's what the text said, okay? So six, verse 64, but some of you, Jesus speaking here, but some of you do not believe me. And I love the parentheses here because that's for us. These parentheses don't exist in the, the original text, okay? So they're giving you a clue as to what's going on here, okay? For Jesus knew from the beginning which ones didn't believe and he knew who would betray him. Then he said, this is why I said to you that people can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. These disciples were confronted by Jesus. Jesus called them to see themselves as they truly are, not really followers of Christ. Jesus also reveals that this knowledge of faith, this gift of faith, comes only through God the Father. Faith for us is the same way it's a gift from the Father, created for us by Jesus Christ the Son and his work, his, his work here in his life and his death, his burial, his resurrection, but also made real to us, given to us through the Holy Spirit. It's a triune gift given to us by God. And if you don't have this gift of faith, as these disciples did not, Jesus' words can feel like a burden to you. They can feel difficult as a standard to reach and grab a hold of, and they can ultimately feel hurtful to you. But I want to be clear, Jesus' words, nor his attitude in presenting those words, were meant to be harsh. 
Jesus, in fact, I would challenge you. And I did challenge the first service. And I had people after the first service come to me and share some examples of how they thought Jesus might be harsh in a couple situations. But I want to share with you, Jesus is not harsh. He's truthful, always. In fact, when the scriptures, when they define Jesus's character, his heart, his personality, the two words that they used to describe Jesus were gentle and lowly in heart. Those two phrases. And yet, some of the things Jesus says can seem harsh, can feel harsh. Have you ever been sharing Jesus with somebody, sharing Christ's story, the gospel with someone, and you get to this point in the conversation where what you've just presented to them, which is the truth of the gospel, that unless they repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, They'll be separated forever from the Father. Have you ever been at that point and someone looks at you and go, well, if that's the case, that is harsh. That's harsh. You mean Jesus is going to say no to me if I refuse to embrace him? That feels harsh. And here's the thing. We, we live in a day and age where everybody loves to toy with words, right? I mean, we love it. We love to tell you what a definition of a word really means forgetting that we made this whole language thing up anyway. We forget that sometimes a word to you means something different to me, but this defines itself. We don't get to define it. And so when you read the scriptures, especially the gospels, you see that Jesus had a lot of things to say about how the world works. In fact, he had things to say about how to use power and influence and authority. He had things to say about how to use your money he had things to say about how to use your time and to have an overall attitude of service towards those who need help. He talked about what to do at your jobs. He talked about what to do with the gift of God that is sex. And he talked specifically about your identity. And while I would argue that his words are not difficult or confusing, they do cut to your very soul. And you can respond to him by refusing to listen to what he has to say about your life. But listen, the scriptures are clear. The gospel of Jesus Christ is an obstacle. It is a stumbling block to both Jews and Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 1, 23. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, which is what we do here at Brookwood Church, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say, all that's nonsense. The words of Jesus, his ultimate work, that he came to earth to accomplish, to seek and to save those who are lost through his death, burial, and resurrection. That should be our food, our sustenance, the very thing that we need in order to live as followers of Jesus Christ. And we must embrace that in order to receive the gift of faith that God has for us. But that faith can be an obstacle to those who don't believe. Now, for those of you in this room, some of you, not all of you, but some of you are in this place and you're thinking, that's right, you get them, JC. They need to hear the truth. Suck it up, buttercup. This is the truth. We must present truth in a loving way. Because sometimes people don't just reject the gospel because of the gospel. Sometimes they reject the gospel because you're a jerk. But JC, if I tell somebody the truth, I can't be a jerk. No, that's not true. That's not true. In fact, if you've had any experience with little kids, when you tell them to do anything, sometimes they don't always respond respectfully. 
You ever had a kid tell you yes to the question that you needed a yes to, but they do it with a bad attitude? Go to your room. Fine, I'll go to my room. Turn into some weird mutant creature, right? No, our, our, the truth, the content of what we say can be true and we can present it in an unloving way. But let me also help you. In this room, there's two groups of people who are followers of Jesus. There's, this, there's one group who you need to fully embrace the truth of God as the only hope that people have. That what the word of God is, is totally all we need. And I don't have to sugarcoat it for anybody. You need to grow in your confidence in God's word. But there's another group of you here that you are very prideful. You're very prideful with the word of God. And you sometimes lord these things over people, which is exactly the attitude that the religious leaders had that Jesus was not pleased with. You gotta grow in those things. I wanna give you a quick, here's just a quick phrase you can remember to help you as you're trying to share the truth of God's word with somebody. It's just this, tell the truth, don't be a jerk. Say that with me. Tell the truth. Don't be a jerk. That's it. That's a simple formula for us. Tell the truth. If God's word says it, it's the truth. And I can hang my hat on that. I can hang my hat on what God says is true forever and always. What God says is true. But don't be a jerk about it. Don't be a jerk. See, Jesus tells the truth, but he's not harsh in his delivery, even though sometimes we hear the words and we go, they're utterly truthful, cutting to the very core of our being. His words may come into combat with our soul and our identity. And I'll tell you that this, this is not an easy move. Sometimes we think that becoming a follower of Jesus is just as simple as marking yes on a response card. Yes, I want to embrace Jesus Christ. But when you surrender your entire identity to Jesus and you've been encapsulated by a lifetime of sin that you have identified yourself with for decades, fully embracing the life of Jesus Christ is a death. It's a death to who you are. And I think we need more stories of what this looks like to separate, not just from our behaviors and choices, but also from people that we've aligned ourselves with that are aligned against God. In order to become a follower of Christ, we've got to forsake all those things. And I, there's a book that we've got in our bookstore, or you can order it. It's called Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Butterfield. She's a former English professor who turned into a Christ-following homeschool mom, but she was in a committed lesbian lifestyle and befriended a pastor. And they would show up and they'd read the Bible together, they'd share with each other. And she talks about in this book, the death of not just leaving her sin, but also leaving the community, people she's built relationships and connections with, because at one time she felt Jesus's words were harsh, but now Jesus's words our life to her. And here's the thing, Jesus's word never changed. It's not his words that are harsh. It's our identity coming in to conflict with what his words have to say. And listen, we win people to Christ through our relationship with them. But the reality is at some point, just like Jesus does in this passage, a line is drawn 
and they have to wrestle with God, but not with you. At some point, they'll have to decide with Christ who he truly is. So let's make sure, Brookwood Church, if we're going to share the gospel with people, if we're going to be honest with them about what God's word says, let's make sure that people reject the gospel of Jesus Christ and they wrestle with God himself and his words rather than us because of our attitude. And listen, we can have bad attitudes. So tell the truth and don't be a jerk. Tell the truth, don't be a jerk. But listen, Jesus is honest with how life is supposed to be. Not just from like the back end of, there's been, you know, several years that have passed by, Jesus comes to planet earth, but Jesus says he was there from the beginning. He's a creator of the world. The beginning doesn't just mean when Jesus was born here on earth as a man. It means that Jesus started this whole thing. So not only does he know from human experience how life is supposed to work. He also knows because he provided the blueprint. He made it all. And he knows it's how it's supposed to work. For us, we have got to understand that the creator dictates how the world is supposed to be. Not us. Not us. Not you. The truth is, when God shares, here's how I designed life. Those things can feel offensive to us if that's not how we want life to be. And listen, I want you to pray. I want you to pray. Listen, pastors around the country are feeling all kinds of pressure to cater to people rather than preach God's word. Listen, it's challenging. You know, listen, it's always been people's opinions. You could have said this, you could have done this, you could have smiled a little more, you could have, you know, had a little more pep in your step as you walk around the state. You know, all kinds of stylistic things. But today, there's a pressure to dilute the word of God to not tell people the truth, to cater to their own desires. And I'm thankful to be at a place like this because not only do I feel comfortable to share God's word with you, but I think there's a group full of pastors who love the fact that we get to preach God's word as it is, and I'm excited to be a part of that. But the culture is warring against the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I will tell you, while culture may tell you it is harmful to tell people the truth in a loving way, the most harmful thing you can do is be dishonest with someone. Now, some of you who've got older kids, you may can think of a couple instances where you were dishonest with your children and in your mind, you probably were dishonest to try and protect them or to keep them from harm. And yet, what did that dishonesty do to your relationship? It broke it. And some of you, you know, I get this time sometimes, especially with parents when their kids are becoming teenagers or right in middle school, because in middle school and in high school, kids start to ask, like, do you really believe what you believe? And then they ask things like, mom, have you ever done that before? Dad, have you ever done that before? And you can feel the pressure to maybe just shave a little off some of these stories. And while I'm not advocating to share things before they're age appropriate to share, I am advocating for you to both trust God with your children more than you and to trust your children with the truth. But JC, you don't know me, you don't know my story. You're right, 
but you don't know me and my story all the way either. We must be honest with our kids and believe that God's grace truly is miraculous, that I'm not who I used to be. God's changed me, and he continues to change me. We got to be honest with them when they ask. Our kids are asking, is this really true? And we shouldn't be dishonest with them when they ask that question. But I, I want to give you confidence. Truth told with a loving attitude and spirit is never, ever harmful, no matter what culture may say to you. These disciples deserted Jesus, but can I share with you, they already weren't with Jesus. They merely took a step that was representative of where their hearts truly were. Jesus didn't say anything untrue to them. The reason why they were frustrated with what Jesus said is because it collided with where their hearts truly were. So let me ask you this. Do the words of Jesus seem like a burden to you? Do you communicate the words of Jesus like they should be a burden? Or do you embrace the words of Jesus as life, spirit and life, as Jesus says his words truly are? Kids, students in this room, where are you? Are there any students in here going back to school this week? You can raise your hand. I'm not going to call on you yet. Okay, good. Hey, listen, as you go back to school, can I share something with you? I couldn't imagine being a student in school today. It's tough. One, they're teaching you math, all weird, some people think. I love the way they teach you math. I think it's great. But you're being told that just by living as a faithful follower of Christ, you are harmful to someone else's way of life. That's just not true. It's not true. And can I tell you something? Our church needs a testimony of young people standing strong in the faith going back to our schools. And the other kids in your school need you to be what the scriptures describe you to be if you're a follower of Christ, the light of the world, the salt of the earth. Because there are students in your school and teachers in your school realizing this can't be all life is. I mean, are we really just gonna fight over words all the time? What is all this? So we're praying for you this week. Our church is gonna pray for you at the end of the service, but we're praying for you this week as you head back to school for you to be confident, faithful, loving, encouraging, and that you're able to share the gospel with people who truly need it. But this crowd who deserted Jesus was not the only response in this passage. You can also devote yourself to Christ when you're responding to his words. You can devote yourself to him. Verse 67, then Jesus turned to the 12. I love that. I love that. It's this picture of him as leader, as mentor, as this crowd. And remember, how many people got fed miraculously? At least 5,000 men. And it says many of those deserted him. So we're not talking about like 30 people leaving the scene. We're talking about thousands of people leaving. And as thousands of people exit stage left, Jesus turns to the 12, the ones he picked, and he asked them, are you also going to leave? Simon Peter, captain of the Avengers, self-proclaimed, he replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe 
and we know you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus said, I, cho I chose the 12 of you, but one of you is a devil. He was speaking of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, one of the 12, who would later betray him. After many deserted Jesus, and we mean many, not just a few, Jesus turns to the 12. This is the first time this group associated as the 12 is mentioned in the Gospel of John. So let me ask you a question. Now listen, Perry's going to be coming back soon, okay? So I'm trying to prepare you. So I'm going to ask you a question I need you to answer, okay? Don't, you got to be ready when he comes back, okay? Why did Jesus ask that question? Why did he ask the 12 that question? Somebody tell me. Come on, be brave. He wanted them to think about it. Now, you're right. He did already know the answer, but he wanted them to think about it. Y'all ever asked your kids a question you already knew the answer to? Anybody ever done that? Why do you do that? Just to be annoying? Sometimes. <laughs> no, you want them to wrestle with it. You know, you want them to figure it out. You want them to answer the question. See, in the Greek, the author does this in a way to show you that Jesus meant this question rhetorically. He used a word that lets you know in that common construction of grammar back in the day that when that participle was used, the answer, it was a rhetorical question and the answer was supposed to be no. Jesus already knew what they were going to do. In fact, he says later in those verses that he knew one of them is going to stab Jesus in the back. He wasn't asking because he wanted to know and he wasn't asking because he needed somebody to be with him. He was asking the question so the disciples could see what was really going on. Thousands of people just deserted Jesus Christ, but they're sticking around. And Jesus was clear, things are going to get tougher. And so he wanted them to wrestle with what's actually happening. Jesus would say something and not run after people when they reject him. Yeah, that's what he did. And he looks at the 12 and he says, what about you? He is trying to laser focus the disciples' attention on what is happening in this moment. He's asking so that they will understand that while many are leaving and deserting Jesus, they're not. And they're going to stick close to him. Peter, I, I love this. He's a self-proclaimed spokesperson of the group. And I don't know if he was like always stepping up or because he talked one time, like they always pushed him up front. I don't know what happened. But he's always the one speaking out. And so he says, we, we can't go anywhere else. Where would we go? What would we even do now that we've seen what we've seen and heard what we've heard? What would we do? We can't. And I love that Peter, just as Jesus says... Peter points to Jesus' words being life, not his power, not his miracles, not the healings, not the exorcisms, but Jesus' words. Jesus' words, just as Jesus has said, are spirit and life. I think his response is also beneficial, not just for the disciples whom he was speaking for, but also for us. He wanted the disciples, he wanted to communicate to Jesus that his words mean something to them. 
and that when he teaches, it's not just for the crowd, but it's also for them. And that they need not just his miraculous power, but they need his instruction and his guidance and the truth of how this world works. I think it's important that we notice that Peter made that distinction. See, Jesus is the source of life. His words provide what we need each and every day to get us through as followers of Jesus. They are sustenance for us. They're food for us. They're literally nutrition for us as followers of Christ, fostering attitudes and choices in us, shaping our heart and our mind with how to think about this world. When the scriptures speak about the Word of God, they not only speak positively about the Word of God always, but they also share with us that embracing, following, obeying, knowing, which in that age, knowing did not just mean mental assent, it meant embracing and obedience. That in order to embrace the Word of God, we, we would need to do that in order to grow, in order to learn, in order to understand ourselves and our very nature. But the world, as it continues to try and grab your heart with its hands, we must invest ourselves in the Word of God by the Spirit of God. Now, I love, I love the Bible. You know, I think it's sometimes, it, it's a little weird to me to come up here because I can tell you every single week, this is one of my favorite passages because I spent a lot of time in that particular passage. But the Word of God is amazing to me to think through just what it is for us. The scriptures are for us, written by a number of different authors who spoke a number of different languages, who weren't even all alive at the same period of time, who most of the authors really never met each other. And yet the story that they give us is a story of God, and we can trust it as true. And I want to challenge you, as, as especially students, as you're going back to school, but parents, as your kids are going back to school and they're coming with all kinds of fun stuff, you know, maybe you're a homeschool parent and school's not starting for you, but you're just continuing school, like you need to invest yourself in what God's Word says and how it translates the world to us. And I think Psalm 119 is one of those chapters to really learn about the benefits of God's word. Now, it's the long one. It's 150 verses long, okay? I love the fact that the longest chapter in the entire Bible is the one that talks about the Bible itself. It talks about the words of God itself. And I think it's worth reading and praying over. Now, if you don't want to read all 150 verses at one time, that's okay. It sections it off for you in most modern translations. It sections the scriptures off for you. And you could pick up six or seven at a time, 15 at a time, and read from there. But the psalmist describes how life is truly benefited by the Word of God. In fact, I want to give you just one small sample of that passage today. Psalm 119, verses 33 through 40. It says this, Teach me your decrees, O Lord. I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding, and I will obey your instructions. I will put them into practice with all my heart. And please know, when you're reading these Psalms, sometimes you go like, this person just believed this. They're on the back end. No, they're praying. God, make me believe this. Make this true. Make this be what is the reality of my life. And that's how we should be praying, right? I'll put this into practice with all my heart. Make me walk along the paths of your commands, for that is where my happiness is found. Give me an eagerness for your laws rather than a love for money. Turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life through your word. Reassure me 
of your promise made to those who fear you. Help me abandon my shameful ways for your regulations are good. I long to obey your commandments. Renew my life for your goodness. I think Psalm 119 gives us a model for how we can approach God's word faithfully as a follower of Jesus. It should be something that brings us life. It should be something that adds flavor, if you will, to our very existence. It should bring us joy, happiness, and it is the measuring stick for how we should shape our lives. But we must believe that the Word is what it says that it is. Not only do we need it, but the world needs it. And I pray that for us, we become an example of how to live out the Word of God in front of people. Now, I want to challenge you. Some of you, you know, sometimes we, we kind of do this every New Year's where we talk about New Year's resolutions and everybody, you know, up in arms, burdensome, all, you know, all these things. But I just want to encourage you. If you're somebody who's new to the faith and you're trying to figure out where do I start? Where, where do I start with God's Word? I really want to invest myself more into it, but where do I start? I want to start, I, I'm going to give you three ideas and they'll, you know, be varying effectivenesses for your personalities, okay? Place one, start with Jesus. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's a great place to start. Each of those particular books of the gospel was written with a particular purpose, and so you'll gain something unique from each one. But ultimately, read about Jesus. I think reading about Jesus is always a good practice for your life. But for some of you, you're like, ah, I read the gospels all the time. I need something a little more. Give me something that's going to challenge the way I think. Help, help me process through, which I would say, please read Jesus. He would absolutely do that for you, okay? But if you're looking for something unique and different, maybe you feel like you've read the Gospels, but you struggle with other parts of the Bible, uh, I want to give you this. There's a method I've been using for several years called the Psalm of the Day. Um, I'm sure I've talked about it up here, but today's the 14th of August. So Psalm 14, and then you just add 30 five times. So Psalm 44. Psalm 74, by the way, doing math in front of people is intimidating. Uh, Psalm 104 and then Psalm 134. And then you just pick one of those. And you don't just read it, you pray that passage of scripture. The Psalms are our hymn book. They're our, our prayer book that we can go to God with. And that, I think it'll teach you not only about who you are, it'll teach you how to pray. And I think that's important. And then the last thing, if you're like me, sometimes you've done so much plans, you've done so many things that you feel like, you know, I just need something where I can just not think about, is this the right plan or not? So I, I got a new Bible this year and uh, I just did some quick math and I figured out here's how many pages I need to read every day in order to read the Old Testament two times. And here's how many pages I need to read a day in order to read the New Testament three times in a year. So I have a page count I'm trying to hit. You can judge me however you want for that, okay? It's been, it's been reassuring to know I'm hitting my mark or not. And I know, listen, JC, are you a bad follower of Jesus? If you don't meet your standards, you get frustrated and all those things. No, I don't, I don't think that. But if we truly believe what the Word of God is, which is life, our measuring stick, how we determine how life is supposed to be lived, how we determine what's a right choice and attitude that we should exhibit in our own lives, we should ask ourselves the question, do I know the Word of God? I think it's reasonable to ask that. Now, I'm thankful because you come here every week to hear God's word being preached to you. You know, sometimes as a pastor, it's a little intimidating to go, how am I going to be creative with the same thing we've preached here before? But we don't need to be. We come to hear God's word. And so we want to preach it. We want to listen to it. We want to meditate on it. We want to steep ourselves in it. And then eventually what happens a little bit of time, day after day, 
The words of God come out of our mouth. They just start popping out. We don't control it. We don't manipulate it. It just starts coming out. Five, five minutes a day. If you do five minutes a day this week, seven days, 35 minutes, you spent literally a half hour in God's word. You do that over a month's time, half hour times 30 days. Talking about 15 hours in God's word. You're approaching an entire day spent in the Bible just at five minutes a day. So I just want to encourage you. Kids, especially as you're going back to school, adults as your kids are either going back to school or you're just trying to get to Monday. You need the word of God's influence in your life. And I pray that God would give us courage to live life truthfully and lovingly in front of the people that we have influence over. Let's pray. God, we love you. And uh, we're so thankful for you. We're thankful that you didn't just come and do a bunch of stuff and then just leave us here. You accomplished an incredible work of saving us from ourselves and the sin that we trap ourselves into. You save us from a real enemy who wants to destroy us. So God, I pray that you'll give us courage to present the truth to people in a loving way. God, I pray if there's someone in here who they, they've just come across something that they don't like about what Jesus said. And pray that they wrestle with you and that you show them how your words are spirit and life and are not harsh. God, I pray for our students right now. We lift them up to you. God, I pray, I pray if there's a single student either in this room or listening online, I pray, God, that you give them boldness and courage as they enter into the doors of their school this week. I pray, God, that you firm up their convictions, that you invest in them the fruit of the Spirit, and it would just overflow so much that even when they walk into a classroom, students recognize that there is something different about who they are. And I pray that you'll give them the courage to share it and to share it boldly. And I pray that we'll see many kids and students come to Christ because of the influence of our kids in their schools. And if there's families in here who, and they're excited or they're mourning, the fact that their kids are going back to school, I pray, God, that you'll be present with them, that they'll feel your love and encouragement. And I pray that we'll be a church that can build up our kids and send them out into this world. We love you. It's in the name of Christ we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you all for being here. See you all next week. Thanks for joining us for this week's podcast. Before a few meals this week, here's a spiritual practice you can do. Read John chapter 6, verses 53 and 55. Do this to strengthen your loyalty to Jesus and help you remember that he is the only one who can truly satisfy your deepest hunger. We'll continue our series next week titled Extraordinary. To prepare, read Matthew chapter 17, 1 through 13 and Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. At Brookwood, we want to help you pursue a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience a transformed life. One way you can do this is by getting connected at Brookwood. Just email us, connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call 864-688-8326 to speak to someone on our connections team. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast. If you like what you hear, leave a review so that others can discover how they can have a transformed life in Christ as well. Thanks for listening and have a great week.